Hello and welcome to Trek in Time. This is the podcast that takes a look at Star Trek in order and in history. We're going to be taking a look at each episode of Star Trek in chronological order. So at this point, we're still in early days. We're in Enterprise. We're also going to be taking a look at things that were going on in the world at the time of the original broadcast. So right now we're stomping through early 2002. We're also going to be taking a deeper dive into the episodes, taking a look at what happens in the episodes, and potentially talking about things that are about the episodes themselves or about the world around it. And you're wondering, who's doing all this talking? It's me. I'm Sean Farrell. I'm a writer. I write (laughs) books that have some sci-fi in them, like Man in the Empty Suit. And with me is my brother, Matthew. Say hello, Matt. Hello, Matt. Matt is the tech guy and inquisitor behind the YouTube channel Undecided with Matt Farrell which takes a look at emerging tech and its impact on our lives. Don't forget, there are a number of ways you can directly support the podcast. You can, of course, keep listening, or if you're on YouTube, watching. And you can also go to trekintime.show, and there you will find a link to a cookie jar that happily accepts coins if you're able to give. We appreciate whatever kind of support you're able to give, whether it's monetary or just listening and sharing us with your friends. All of it really does help the podcast. And Matt, I believe there's a couple of listener comments that you could share with us before we move on to the new episode. Sure. From Karen Collette on the Sleeping Dogs episode, which is when Reed got his cold and the Klingons at the gas giant with the ship that was sinking. My Reed cold plot idea. After, uh, what was the character's name? Buka. Buka, yeah. After Buka is captured, Dr. Phlox diagnoses the neurotoxin as before, but expresses dismay that Buka's prognosis is dire. That mysteriously turns around, however, and she starts to recover on her own. After investigating, Phlox determines that she got infected by Reed during their brief fight, and somehow that infection is clearing out the neurotoxin. Towards the end, after Phlox let Reed's know about the cold, how it helped save the day, Reed says something like, that's good, but maybe there should be a rule about not having infected people on boarding parties. And this is what I'm talking about, but like, it was like Chekhov's cold. They made yeah. it a thing, and it never had any kind of ramification. Yeah, this is the clever way to to tie it in, kind of yeah, close Karen's that loop. Res- Karen's suggestion, yeah. I think, is a really, it's really, really good, key, good one. Yep. And then we have one of our regular viewers, Pale Ghost sixty nine, commenting again. The cold thread in the story would have been better if they showed how easy it is transmitted through a confined ship and how they deal with it. Flocks could have been chasing it down with scanners and visual clues, showing just how contagious it can be as it spreads from crewman to crewman. Ultimately, he would have had to give up and accept its new challenge as a new challenge to deal with. And I also think Reed's cold should have had more importance on the Klingon ship, like he has to go through their garbage and waste room to salvage a piece of tech. Or imagine this, that we found out having a cold makes him ir- um, irresistible to Buka, and she bites Reed in a fit of anger and passion that ends up destroying the equipment needed to fix the ship. Um, insert rewriting the whole episode, <laughs> which is what we've all been yeah, doing with this specific we, episode. That's basically <laughs> the context of this podcast. So Yeah. And when they say goodbyes, uh, Reed, Reed's cold is gone and she wants nothing to do with them. So it's like, once again, having some kind of tie back yeah. would have helped a ton. Both of these suggestions could have worked beautifully together. Yeah. I really like the idea of there being a part of the ship where uh, when Paul. And Sato try to go through it. They're like, the odor in there is overwhelming. We can't make it through that part of the ship. And Reed is like, what smell? And just yeah. happily traipses on through with no problem. Exactly. So today we're going to be talking about the episode Fusion. This one is directed by Rob Heaton. 
and written by Rick Berman and Brandon Braga. The teleplay was by Sussman and Strong. This is their third episode so far in the series. And a little uh, interesting side note about the director. He wrote and directed Jason Takes Manhattan. He's made, <laughs> he's made a bunch of films and he's yeah. the guy who made Jason uh, hit the, uh, the old Broadway there. This episode aired on February 27th. 2002 it had 4.49 million viewers so a little bit of a decline uh, at this point the show is struggling in its mm-hmm. beginning of its second half of the first season and the world that this landed in well i know you'll be heartbroken to hear this matt for the last week <laughs> nickelback's how you remind me was the number one song the biggest movie at the box office bringing in just about $15 million and February historically has been the era of, uh, we don't know what to do with this. Put it in theaters. Now they just kind of shovel the stuff that they don't know what else to do with into February. So here we are mid February and the number one movie was queen of the damned. Queen of the damned is a 2002 Gothic horror film directed by Michael Reimer. And it's loosely based on the third novel of Anne Rice's Vampire Chronicle series. It's a standalone sequel to The Interview with a Vampire. And the, films, the film famously starred Ilea in the title role. And sadly, Ilea perished uh, not too long after this movie was filmed. And this movie, I remember when it came out, everybody was saying, this is her star turn. This is her planting herself as being somebody that should be watched moving forward. And sadly, she passed. I do not remember that movie at all. <laughs> not at all. I've never seen the movie, but I remember the posters. I remember the images behind it. And um, the plot uh, the plot is described as the vampire queen... Um, I believe one of the elements is that the vampire Lestat is resurrected as a rock star and is gaining a following because he's performing on stages. It's no. Yeah. Yeah. We won't go too deep into that. Nope. And this week, the number one TV show on the air with a paltry 28 million viewers, a little show called CSI. CSI of course would go on to do nothing. (laughs) <laughs> I'm joking. This is CSI where you rip off your glasses. The many permute- <laughs> whip off my yeah! glasses and go, yeah! <laughs> the- As a matter of fact, uh, not too long ago, I was able to pull a pun moment like that and did then whip off my glasses and say, yeah, and it was one of the proudest moments of my life. Do you know that show's coming back on the air? I didn't know it ever left. So. C- no, I mean, CSI Las Vegas, the old crew is coming back one? for for a new run where one of the i think it's the original cop from the show something bad happened to him and so all of his cases are getting reopened and they're doing an investigation because they think that there were multiple people on the take and are bad csi and cops and so they're reopening old cases and these old some of the old team comes back to defend themselves and to look into it interesting so it looks like it's, it looks interesting I was actually a fan of the first one, uh, not so much the subsequent shows. <laughs> right. In the news on the day this episode aired, from the New York Times, Giuliani, 
at that time mayor of New York, promised to give money quickly to the families of the 9-11 victims. This was money that was provided uh, through various government agencies in order to provide support to families that had lost family members. Also, Enron stayed in the news with the Enron chief sitting before the Senate and clashing with them in, in a very defensive posture. Saudi Arabia was floating a Mideast peace proposal. And Donald Rumsfeld closed a, quote, damaged information office. And what's an information office, you're wondering? Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld disbanded the Pentagon's Office of Strategic Influence today, ending a short-lived plan to provide news items, possibly even false ones, to unwitting foreign journalists to influence public sentiment abroad. Mr. Rumsfeld denied the new office would have spread misinformation, but he said commentaries and editorial cartoons about the office's proposed activities made it impossible for it to do its job. (laughs) So let's all shed a tear Mm. for propaganda. Matt, do you want to give us a synopsis of today's episode, Fusion? Sure. Enterprise encounters a group of unconventional Vulcans, one of whom leads to Paul into further exploring her emotions. So this episode opens on or about somewhere in November of 2151. And looking through some of the future episodes that are coming up, we have six episodes that are effectively undated. And the next known date after those six episodes is in February of 2152. So since I'm the one talking on this podcast, I have decided arbitrarily that two of those episodes will be in November, two of them will be in December, and two of them will be in January. Because to me, it seems to fit that if you're a part of an adventuring band, you'd have a new adventure about every two weeks. So completely arbitrary, but that's what we're going with. Let's go with it. So here we are in November of 2151. The Enterprise is near the Arachnid Nebula. And little fun fact... There is no arachnid nebula. I couldn't help but wonder why they wouldn't have picked an actual nebula to base this around. I thought that would have been fun to have them visiting an actual place and Mm -hmm. create special effects to recreate that actual place. Would have been a nice touch. That's not what they did. They just came up with the arachnid nebula and on their way to it, they are hailed by a Vulcan vessel, which is in need of repair. And it looks like an older vessel, which to Paul says, this is not something that has been used for quite a long time. And they're hailed by its captain, whose name is Tavin. Tavin says that, surprisingly, he's very happy to meet uh, the captain of the Enterprise. And very clearly from their first discussion, Matt, you can tell these Vulcans are not like other Vulcans. No, they're very laid back. Like they just came across another human ship, just very casual, laid back, relaxed, jovial, even jovial. Yes. Pleasant. One might say. Yes. Pleasant. So they meet Captain Tavin and one of the nice parts of the scene that follows after they, they make their introductions via uh, communication through from ship to ship communication. Archer invites, Tavin and other members of his crew aboard the Enterprise, they link up with one another and the Enterprise is going to help provide some repairs to this aging Vulcan vessel. 
and the captain and some of his crew have dinner with Archer and Paul. And it's obvious in the performance that they are acting not nearly as Vulcan as Blaylock's Vulcan. Yep. But they are also not acting as Vulcan as even Spock. Yeah. Yeah. So where Spock has, especially in the original series, is somewhere between human and Jolene Blaylock's Vulcan. He's not nearly as reserved as her, but he's much more reserved than the humans. These Vulcans come across as just one step below human emotional response. They, it's a very nuanced aspect of the performance. There's something like that felt almost like a little manic about it, where it was like somebody who's just a hair too happy or a, t- a hair too whatever the emotion is. Right. Which I thought was interesting. It was like, it's a little bit like yeah. somebody who's arrived at the party and had one drink. Yes. And the conversation yes. is flowing maybe a little more freely than it would yes. have under yes. normal circumstances. There is kind of a tipsiness to the aspect of, and not to say that they're uninhibited, it's no. just their emotional response is right there as opposed to seeing sublimated. And it's nicely performed. The captain, who unfortunately in this episode, I, I would have enjoyed to see more of Tavin. But yeah, I've, got a, is, I've got a thought on that. Um, it's actually one of my complaints is that we only really see the captain in the beginning of the show. And then he's basically persona non grata for the rest of the episode. Yeah, it's unfortunate because I thought his performance was very good. And I don't know if you know this little fun fact. This is Robert Pine. Uh, playing Captain Tavin, and I kept having little flashbacks to Parks and Recreation where he plays the head of a local cult that <laughs> likes to forecast the end of the world. And they believe that a lizard alien named Zorp is going to come back to <laughs> Earth and destroy it, and his prognostications keep not coming true. But he has these semi-annual events at a local park where he signs up for an all-night uh, basically waiting party for the return of Zorp. And according to his calculations, that is going to happen. And there's an episode revolving around various members of the Parks and Rec team staying up all night outside in this park waiting for Zorp. And they keep talking about Zorp's teachings and Zorp's promises and saying, hail Zorp. And he is the leader of that group. And he does a great job. And Robert Pine is most famously known for his stint on the show Chips, where he played a lieutenant in charge of the city highway patrol. And he's also known as dad to Chris Pine, who, of course, played Captain Kirk in the J.J. Abrams films. So strange little... Star uh, Trek runs strong in that family. Strong in that family. (laughs) So... Tavin informs Archer and the members of the crew that this is a group of Vulcans who left Vulcan eight years previously and their mission is to explore, but not just the galaxy they're exploring themselves. They are going through what T'Pol identifies as Vitash Couture, Vulcans without logic. They push back on this as Mm -hmm. a true descriptive of what they are doing. 
they they basically make the argument logic is the beginning of wisdom not the end this is one of the as i'm watching this of course i'm a viewer as is matt as our i imagine most of you star trek is not new to any of us and if you know spock's progression toward the end of his depiction in all of the movies and tv shows that he appeared in throughout all those years his performance leonard nimoy's performance of spock was beautifully nuanced at the very beginning but it became even more sophisticated and nuanced toward the end where he depicted a vulcan who understood not that he wanted to remove emotion but that he had emotion mm-hmm. and his depiction is a little present i think in robert pine's presentation of this vulcan who is smiling chatting he's a little bit older than the other people on his ship he's got a little more wisdom and he's a little bit more grounded in it and that's part of the reason why i wish there had been more of him in this because he was hearkening back to a more mature spock that kind of knowing i've tried so hard to do that and it didn't work until i learned how to bend a little bit with this and i enjoyed that performance very much there's another reason why he should have come back which we'll get to in a little bit we will get to later i'm sure (laughs) so they end up figuring out what's wrong with the ship and trip is working with the vulcan ships engineer and archer as the days progress he notes that to paul has been avoiding the vulcans and in one of the most awkward scenes i think that could have Hmm. been put in the ship practically orders her to spend more time with these vulcans in what seems very counter to a captain's terrain for being able to order personal interactions between a crewman who doesn't have a direct reason for interaction effectively saying that you should be spending time with your own people what did you think about all that i I didn't go to that far i thought it was a little awkward i do agree with you um he never orders her he just encourages her but the way it was written i just don't think did a good job explaining that they could have had him be very just kind of like almost a tender moment saying to her you know like i think it might do you some good to get to know these vulcans and they've gotten in touch with their emotions in a different way and it might be interesting from a scientist's point of view to kind of get to know them a little bit um don't shut yourself off from experiencing something new like this he could have just like said it to her almost as a friend but it did come across a little weird that he was basically like i'm kind of commanding you but i'm not and it was yeah. it was like why it didn't make sense but yeah if he talked to her more as a friend it might have come across a little bit better yeah i agree a friendly comment would have done more for their connection as characters yeah as opposed to this, which comes across almost like a captain who is, who at this point, contrary to what we've seen in previous episodes, he's acting a little bit like he doesn't get Vulcans. Yeah. And, and it just doesn't work in that scene. So it's a little awkward, but ultimately, um, I think even without that scene, the show could have gotten very easily to where it was going to go. Yes. Which is to Paul has to work with, Vaklas, who is effectively a science officer on this Vulcan ship. The two of them 
need to work together to fully chart the nebula that they are that they are near. And Archer was very surprised and excited to find out that the estimates of the size of the nebula are actually off. So they're doing a charting of this thing to send that information back to Earth. He views it clearly as like, this is valuable information. This is a good thing that we could do. And the mm-hmm. Vulcan ship has deep range sensors that could aid the Enterprise charting. So by working together, they're going to shorten the amount of time that it would take to chart the entire nebula. So I misspoke before when I mentioned uh, she has to work with Voclis. She has to work with Talaris. I'm sorry. Voclis is the name of the ship. So Tapal and Talaris are going to be working together closely. Meanwhile, Trip is working closely with his counterpart, who I was very surprised. Here you have Vulcans. And Vulcans are yes. Vulcans, right? I mean, yes. Vulcans are like, they're smart, they know their stuff. But Trip is talking about repairing this Vulcan ship as if this particular engineering expert aboard the Vulcan ship doesn't have a clue it was as weird. to what is going aboard his ship, which is an odd choice for this character. Really bizarre. Um, I did like... I did like this Vulcan character. I thought he was very charming. I like the character. I, and I like the yeah. storyline. I like the the yes. B story in this is, I think, nicely done. The the one thing that I thought was this was comic relief. This this plot line was a little comic relief because there were moments where they're having lunch together, and Trip asks him about Vulcan sex because he's trying to be very coy about it, mm-hmm. and the guy just blurts out like, "Oh, you're asking about sex," and everybody in the mess hall quiets down like, uh, "What did Trip just ask this guy?" So it, there was comic relief with it, mm-hmm. um, but there were some interesting moments that came out of the conversations. And one of them was when there were two of them were, were in engineering talking, and uh, the Vulcan guy was asking Trip about a lot of the misperceptions of humans. Of like, I heard you basically just mate all the time, and you just you grab spend the most woman of your you day want, in bed, yeah, and made in bed, and all of a sudden Trip's like, oh no, no, it's nothing like that. It's nothing like that. And then he made a comment that made me turn my head and I did a little bit of a Scooby-Doo when he said, Trip said, women are nearly one third of the crew. I had the exact and same response. My, it was like a record scratch of like, wait, what? Yeah. Why would you not say 50%. half the crew is women? Yeah. It's like, why would you not say that? It's like, it's this is supposed to be the beginning of Starfleet. We've come out of the dark ages of us being a semi-repressed society and we're supposed to be the the bright future and it's like equality yeah it's only one third of the what what the hell that mean <laughs> it's like and i said to my wife after watching the episode i said i remember watching this when it was first aired and that never jumped out at me yeah and i have a feeling i'm probably a little more tuned to it now yes. because of all the stuff that's been happening over the past three or four years that i think my perspective has definitely shifted as i've that's on over the past few years and that's you know i agree with you my antenna are more sensitive now than they were in the past yeah i'm trying very hard to pay attention to stuff like this comments like this i went and did some research currently the u.s military roughly 17 percent of the u.s military is women Mm -hmm. so in this offhand reference of the service of the future, which would be Starfleet, 130 years from now, they were forecasting that the number of women serving effectively in the military will only double. Yeah. That it will not reach 
parody. Right. And Trip says this with a sense of like pride. Like, yeah, exactly. Oh, you're that's being she, ridiculous what, to think that women are considered subservient. It's they're almost a third of the crew, you you fool. Yeah. And it really that did stand out. And I think that it's it's linked to a thing we will talk about at the end of the episode, which for me also stood out as a major problem with the episode and Mm -hmm. representative of the thinking. And we've talked about this before about this show's treatment of women, of, of women characters, of damsels in distress for no reason other than, well, somebody here should be in danger. So of course it's going to be the woman because Archer is going to be the one running around with the phaser, that kind of thing. This episode has touches onto something that I think is that problem magnified to a much greater level. And it's a, and it's a very, for me, it was upsetting by the time I got to the end of this episode where it, where Mm -hmm. it ends up. Yes. We'll talk about that in a moment. Yep. But I agree. Overall, I thought the B storyline was very enjoyable. It is played for comic relief, but it does have tender moments. And Mm -hmm. I think that we can, to shortcut what that storyline talks about, I think it's a very nice element of you have a group of Vulcans who are trying to explore their emotional lives in a way that Vulcans don't embrace typically. And the negative side of this is that you have a Vulcan and this is Tripp's new friend that he's met in this episode. He is basically making decisions about his contact with his father and the, the engineer's name is Kav. Kav has lost all contact with his father because his father expressed shame at Kav's decision to explore this emotional side. And Kav, as the one who is embracing emotion, really needs to be the one to take the higher ground Mm -hmm. because his father has been reaching out and his father is ill. And this comes through the Vulcan High Command communicated to Captain Archer. They find out through this chain of links, oh, Cobb's father is dying. He's been reaching out to his son, but his son has refused to respond. And then it falls to Trip to actually be the one to say, hey, maybe you really shouldn't be doing that. And yeah. I thought it was a very nice moment, a, a little bit of a flipping of the dynamic between a Vulcan and a human, where here you have a human now saying to a Vulcan, you're now in my territory. You've embraced emotions. And part of that is the hurt and the negative side of all of this is sometimes hard to overcome, but sometimes you have to take the higher ground. And by the end of the episode, Kav does in fact do that. How did you feel about the culmination of that storyline and the embracing of going beyond the hurt and actually being willing to accept the olive branch from his father. How did you feel about that story? I liked it. I thought it was great. It's like, I, I really, the, the story that Tripp tells that seems like a non sequitur about the regret that he had going to this teenage dance and not asking this girl to dance. And it's been something that's kind of haunted him. Uh, I love how that ties back to his thing of regret is an emotion. And it's one of the strongest ones you need to, I, I, I feel bad for you if you kind of stumble into this because this is going to be something that will end up haunting you if you're not careful. And th- just this 
the way he communicated this back to his friend and the culmination of it being he reached out to his father, he talked to his father, he found out his father was going to be actually okay for at least the next few years. And it sounded like a bridge had been built because he took the high road. I thought it was a very nice resolution to that 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 plot line. Yeah. And the tender relationship that the trip and he both had. I, I like the the way that all resolved. Yeah, they it started off as one of those, and and Star Trek does this, I think, really well, where they will introduce something that the audience swallows quickly by making mm-hmm. it funny. They'll make yes. it the lighthearted story, and they'll get you to to take in the hook without realizing it. And then by the time the hook has you, you didn't expect it. It's already in your cheek. And what they're doing is they're telling you a very tender story. Mm-hmm. And one where I thought it was it was nice that it was between two men, two men talking about emotion and two men talking about and this this is where in this particular storyline, I think the show is progressive in that it's mm-hmm. two men talking about how do you deal with emotion, how do you deal with hurt, how do you get beyond it, how do you accept somebody trying to say I'm sorry? And mm-hmm. trip being a little more cavalier in most of the episodes, coming across as a little bit more archer doesn't quite play a Kirk aspect of swagger and sort of romanticism of the adventure in the way that other people on the ship do, particularly Trip. Trip is the one mm-hmm. who's a little bit more, I want to get out there and see these things. I want to experience these things. He's the one who's got a little bit more swagger to him. So for him to be the one turning to his new friend and saying like, look, there's a, there's a downside to all this too. Sometimes you have bad feelings. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought it was a very nice, a very nice touch. But the A storyline, which revolves around Talaris and T'Pol, it starts off with a number of conversations where acting choices on the part of the actor who played Talaris, who is Enrique Marciano, he plays him a little creepy. And he, yeah. And there's a creep <laughs> factor to it that I, yes. I wish had been toned down. And there's a lot of the creep aspect to this that I wish had just been excised from the script. They could have had very similar moments and conflict and tension without it being effectively a metaphor for sexual assault. And he was he was leering way too much. He was leering way too much, yeah. looking at everybody through his eyebrows, and especially to Paul. His eyes rarely ever leave her. But if we try and excise the creepiness. Tolaris has one message for T'Pol, which is you're a Vulcan who is holding on to teachings that we believe are a misconstrued and repressive ideology used as propaganda to keep a population from expressing itself to its fullest. And that's Mm -hmm. why we've removed ourselves from Vulcan society. Maybe there's something here that you could embrace and maybe it's something here that you're already open to because surprisingly you're a Vulcan serving aboard an earth ship full of humans and you seem to be doing okay. That message, if you excise all of the personality traits out of the Talaris character, that is mm-hmm. effectively what is being said here. Challenging to Paul's assumption that Vulcan teaching is ideologically correct and right for her that is the character challenge that this episode mm-hmm. should have been embracing. 
But it didn't. But it doesn't. <laughs> it because, didn't. and a lot of this stuff I didn't have a problem with. There was a little bit of confusion the first time the jazz shows up. Uh-huh. When Talaris tries to baby step to Paul toward exploring her emotions a little bit, it starts with just don't meditate. You meditate nightly, just don't meditate. See what happens. She does that. She ends up having vivid dreams. And she expresses later on that she doesn't typically dream. Mm-hmm. So that is something that is a, a an introduction of a difference between her and the humans that we haven't explored up to this point in Star Trek. And she ends up, after having these dreams, she has to go to Dr. Flox effectively for, it seems like, for some anti-anxiety Mm-hmm. medication to basically help calm things down for her because she's not able to feel like herself uh, during the day. Talaris encourages her to take the next step and talks to her about her dreams. And in her dreams, here's where the jazz came in. The, the dream was filled with, on the first take, I couldn't help but think, what in the world are they using all this jazz for? I would have liked a few more context clues to let yeah. me know that the jazz was actually part of the dream as yes. opposed to just a soundtrack. soundtrack for the episode. I because, thought the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what you is end up on? with an episode where a bunch of people are on board a ship and there's dramatic music playing as they swoop in and they attack the Klingons. Nobody thinks that music is playing over the onboard speakers. Yes. But in this moment crazy kooky cool jazz is playing and i thought this is terrible music selection for this part of the episode what are they doing it almost made it look made it look like an old 1950s yes like noir Noir. film it had this really weird sepia tone and she's wearing a headscarf so you can't see her ears and it made it made me think are they trying to say that she's dreaming about being in the 1950s what's going well, the, on that the music was supposed to be in the story you find out later that she was visiting a jazz club in san francisco yes they could have done the music soundtrack so it sounded like it was in a distant building right and she got closer to it in her dream it got louder and it would have felt like it's in the environment we're watching that's why we're hearing this jazz music they didn't do that. It was playing like a soundtrack yeah. that was just in the background. This blah, 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 blah. And it was just like, what is that? What is going on? And it also didn't help that it was totally, it was yes. very freeform jazz. And that's not yes. a soundtrack that we're, company, we're accustomed to in Star Trek. So that's jarring. And not only did they not do as you suggested, <laughs> using like, it's quiet jazz down the alleyway and she follows it to a door and opens up the door and the music gets louder. So we know it's in the context of her environment. They also didn't show us a jazz musician. They, we don't find out that what I just described is what happens until right. she tells us when she's recalling the dream right. and telling him. And that was horrible. It's like, like in, why would you in do movies it that and way? TV, yeah. you show, you don't tell. It's like right. they could have shown us that. And then when she recounts it, it all makes sense. But instead, we just were fumbling through this whole scene. It made no sense. So... What ends up happening is she informs Talaris, I had this dream. It's about a time I was in San Francisco. I heard music and it evoked something in me that I wasn't anticipating. And I found it very jarring and unpleasant. And she's basically describing being stirred by music. And she's Mm -hmm. in an environment where in the dream, I believe you even see two people who are kissing. And there's a, a sort of erotic element to the 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 scene as it's presented so it's very clearly meant to be very unvulcan 
Talaris convinces the dream is made. The dream is made very sexual. Yes, about Tapal and him. Yes, which we can. Get to they are again. in bed together, and yes. she wakes up in a stunned shock gasp because of this very erotic moment that she has dreamt of. And Talaris says the next step to this is to try to do something which is called a mind meld. So now we are being presented with a thing we are very familiar with as fans of Star Trek. This goes back to my earlier comment. None of us here are probably new to Star Trek. We know what a mind meld is. To Paul does not. So now we are being presented with a thing in a way that the show is saying, yeah, you know that character Spock, he's probably closer to this kind of Vulcan than he is mm-hmm. to that kind of Vulcan. So the mind meld process begins and it looks classically the way that we're used to. Hand on the face, your mind to my mind, my mind to your mind. Repeated, focus on my the sound of my voice, focus on my breathing, we are coming closer together to Paul once out as she is reliving now the visceral elements of the dream and she finds it uncomfortable and she wants out and Talaris now effectively via a mind meld sexually assaults to Paul. He well, it's not a sexual assault, but it's this, it's in that vein. I think it, for me, it was because it is a context of a aroused dream that she has had. It is for the viewer, I think, trying to depict it as an intimacy that he is taking from her. Yes. And for me, it's a metaphor to sexual assault. He has gotten yeah, into her that's cabin. What I'm it's, a me- it's a metaphor for sexual yes. assault, but it's not actual sexual assault in, in the scene. She clearly says no. He refuses to listen to her request and maintains the mind meld and forces her to relive elements of this dream until she can actually physically fight him off. And then the episode practically just stops. Ends. (laughs) This is where my biggest anger about this episode kicks in. Right. Yeah. Why don't you why don't you head off into that territory and then we can so compare notes the whole her dream having that sexual element was unnecessary it didn't need the sexual element at all because his assault is a metaphor for sexual assault you don't even have to show the sex but we've discussed this in previous episodes it's like the cw producers were like leaning over them going you have to sex up to the show sex it up so they tried to sex it up and it kind of deflated the whole point they were getting at the problem with this though is when it just ends it ends in that scene with to paul literally physically fighting him off he leaves in a rage and she calls for help and ends up in sick bay we never really deal with flocks we never deal with her in sick bay we never she never gets her say or her moment of real empowerment in the episode Mm. she is the victim and she is victimized and that's all she's ever portrayed as which was a huge problem for me so when you combine that with the hey one third of our crew is female with how she is used not just from the character that assaulted her but from the storytelling she is used in a really gross way and the way the show ends is not her having a moment of empowerment 
and standing up for herself or talking to the captain. It's the captain doing this weird, like undercover trying to corner him in his right. ready room scene where he basically tries to get a rise out of him to so that he gets explosive and assaults Archer. So the Archer can basically prove that this guy just did something horrible. Right. Which turns out and th- he throws Captain Archer across the ready room and this was all his plan because he had a phase pistol attached to the back of his chair to get ready for this guy, which it's was... Like how many phasers did he plant around his entire ready room? Yes. So that no matter where he ended up, he had a phaser on hand. It Dumb. also, like, what is the point of doing this? Paul says, Captain, I was assaulted by this man. Why would the captain have to set up a sting operation? Bingo. Why would he it's, have to go through this? Why yes. does Archer get a conclusion to his because story? Because her word's not good he enough. Hasn't, her word's not good enough. Her why word's is not good Archer enough. getting conclusion to his story? Which is, at the yes. end of the episode, it, it goes to Archer going to T'Pol and saying, I'm sorry that I kind of made you guys get together in that way. So Archer is getting conclusion to, hmm, I've learned a valuable lesson here. I shouldn't make my crew members associate with people that they feel uncomfortable around. Correct. That's not the lesson. That's not the no. story. We haven't been it's watching not his story. Archer's story. It's not his yeah. story. It's her yeah. story. The entire episode has been her story. And then it's stolen from her at the end. It made me so angry. It's that, not only stolen from her at the uh, end. She hands it to him because they have her ask, do you dream? And he says, yes. And she says, I envy you. So she is now handing him the entire storyline. She's just... so. Here's it's all it, about him and his experience now. If we were going to rewrite this episode again, I would have had a moment in sick bay between Flox, Archer, and her, where she's telling Archer what happened, and Archer getting obviously pissed, and then Archer could have gone off, called the captain of the Vulcan yes. ship yes. into his quarters, and said basically, "WTF? Yeah, he assaulted Your guy us. Assaulted my the, crewman." The captain basically saying oh my God, he's clearly gone off the rails. We're going to have to kind of pull him back in and kind of like he's clearly lost his way. Right. And then basically apologized and then left. And they could have kicked them off and it would have made sense. The whole action sequence with him fighting in the ready room, to Paul getting robbed of her moment, all of that stuff was, it just felt like the entire episode came to a screeching halt at that moment. And it also actually helped rob some of that B storyline. We were talking about how much we liked it because that's like one of the last thing that happens in the episode. And it like, I'm angry watching this tender moment between them. And it was like, it kind of robbed that moment of some of its punch because of everything surrounding it. Yeah. Just, and I think this all, I think this all goes back to male mindset during the writing and production of the episode. Mm -hmm. I think it's all rooted in a, a, a male perspective that doesn't, at that point, and sadly to this point still, does not lend uh, credence to a woman's statement or a woman's viewpoint or see a woman's experience as her own. It's through the lens of the male gaze. And Brandon Braga said of this episode, he called the episode a twisted tale of seduction like a Vulcan nine and a half weeks. You are wildly off base with that. Yes. That is, that is gross. This is Mm -hmm. nowhere near that. This is a metaphor for sexual assault done in a way that takes 
her, as Matt said, her empowerment completely away from her, hands it over to the captain for strange adventures in his ready room where he's got phasers planted everywhere so that no matter where he ends up, he's ready to defend himself in a way that she never could. So it is him demonstrating his strength and his prowess while she was vulnerable and silly enough to invite this guy into her private chambers where she could be assaulted. It is left and right, bad storytelling, bad yeah. mindset, bad ideology. It is, it does There's, not, it does not work. And, and you mentioned one thing about like in our rewriting of this, one of the things, if you wanted to include the element of a Vulcan with a viewpoint about Vulcan ideology, trying to lead her down the garden path to a place where she found herself uncomfortable and then had to push back hard to recenter herself and found herself in a different place than she started. The dream should not have been sexual. The elements should not have been sexual. What if this had been about her unexpectedly having a dream about a memory of when, let's say, she was eight or nine years old and a beloved family member died? Mm -hmm. And she was young and she was being tutored in the ways to repress emotions and she never got to grieve. And then the storyline with Tolaris becomes him badgering her to feel that grief and unlocking a level of grief and emotion in her that she's not ready to deal with. Yes. That could have been a storyline where she found herself now in a place of, I recognize now I've got these buried feelings and thoughts. And I don't know how to tap into them. And the way he wanted me to do it was far too much, far too fast. But I don't know where I am right now. This is difficult for me. And then she could have a moment with the captain of, how do you deal with grief? You could have had a nice tender moment with the two of them at the episode where he gets to be a support to her in her storyline as opposed mm -hmm. to what we saw, which was him turning her storyline into an opportunity for adventure and heroism in his ready room. There was actually also a better episode of Star Trek that basically dealt with the same storyline from Next Generation. Um, it was an episode called, I believe, Violations, where it was a telepath that basically sexually assaults through telepathy, mm. Troy, and other members of the crew. And I'm not saying that episode's perfectly done, <laughs> looking mm -hmm. back on it in hindsight, but it's handled much better with Troy actually having, being given her moment to stand up for herself and push through that's in there where this episode that is robbed uh to paul of that moment so if you want to see a better star trek episode that handles something very similar it's violations so all in all i think this episode i i don't rate it very highly um mm. i would say this for me is a c minus or a d episode yeah. Uh, I would definitely skip over it in a rewatch. I think that there are few per, future episodes of Enterprise, which, strangely enough, they tie back to this. Like so, their their overarching storytelling, where I have previously said I wish they would do more with lingering story elements and bringing things back and telling a longer story arc. They do that with this episode. Because mm -hmm. in a future episode, she effectively has a lingering effect of this assault. Yes. So that is in the future, which is unfortunate. Of all the things for them to hold on to, they hold on to things from this. But I would suggest 
if you're going to watch this episode, really go into it with a the mindset of let's learn some lessons here about what not to do in telling this kind of story mm-hmm. and and expect more of our storytellers and especially in Star Trek, which is presenting itself as the progressive, the futurist show about idealism into the future. Uh, we shouldn't be watching an episode where they're bragging about 30% of the crew being female <laughs> and then one of those members of the crew being assaulted in this way. Mm-hmm. So next time we are going to be talking about the episode Rogue Planet. Matt, what do you expect out of an episode called Rogue Planet? I think it's going to be a planet that's gone rogue. Mm, sounds dangerous. Mm-hmm. Closing question for everybody. You can reach out through the contact information or you can reach out through the comments below the video. But what would you have had happen to Talaris as a result of all of this? Instead of him just getting aboard a ship and them leaving without nary a word from the captain, what would you have had happen to him? A reminder, you can visit trekintime.show and directly support the podcast. You can also just keep doing what you're doing, listening, viewing, liking, sharing. Before we sign off, Matt, is there anything you'd like to mention about upcoming things on your other channels? What do you have going on? I just, once again, stay tuned to the Undecided channel on YouTube uh, where I'm talking about different renewable technologies every week. I've got some interesting topics coming up over the next few weeks that I'm pretty excited about. As for me, you can check out my website, seanfarrell.com. You can search for my books via any bookstore you choose, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or your local bookseller or public library. And if anybody has any comments or corrections, please do reach out. Let us know if, like in today's episode, I inadvertently used the ship's name as the name of a science officer. (laughs) Catch us on these things. We shouldn't be doing that. Please remember to subscribe, to like the episode, and to share it widely with friends and strangers. And do come back next time. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Bye.